Good to see everybody tonight. Glad you could come on out. It's good to be back. Let's take a few moments and pray, and we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thanks for uh, just your presence and the love that you pour out. We thank you for revelation. We thank you for understanding. We thank you, God, that uh, your your kingdom is not a matter of talk, but it's a matter of power. And so tonight, I pray that you would anoint that you would empower. I pray, God, that we would have uh, just the ears to hear what you're saying, and I pray that we'd be affected by your word tonight. Pray, God, you have your way. We pray that we'd be open, ready to receive. Ask, God, that you'd help us to uh, just focus on you, focus on what you're saying, focus on what you're revealing, focus on uh, what's coming forth from your word. We just ask, God, that uh, you would change us, uh, that we would allow you to change us, Pray, Father, that this would be a day of challenge, and it's to ask you, God, that we'd respond to you and respond to your word tonight. We'll give you thanks. Have your way. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. It could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. If you need a Bible, just grab one off the table. Second Corinthians uh, chapter six. Second Corinthians six, and I need a volunteer to read verse seven. Second Corinthians six and verse seven. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, so reading that, I just want to encourage you to read a little bit of context around that. Like you can go back up into the beginning of chapter 6 and see what they're talking about uh, down to that point. Uh, but the whole idea of it is that the gospel, and Paul's just talking about, and, and I think this is why it's an important passage, Paul's talking about his preaching of the gospel, his teaching of the gospel, and he's giving a, a just an overview, a balance of how he taught. And, and how he brought forth truth like that. Uh, the gospel is a word of grace to us. It's a word of grace in our ears. The gospel day is the day of salvation, and now is the time. And so that is a, 
a theme that you see in the scriptures that that what God speaks and, and when God is bringing forth his word, there's a moment, there's a time, there's a place. Uh, when we do evangelism, there's part of the evangelism teaching that goes way, way back to some of the outreaches we did years and years ago when we were first going over the foundational teachings and when we were talking about evangelism and how we're going to do evangelism. There was a, a teaching with Zacchaeus, and some of you remember this, where uh, Zacchaeus, if you remember him from the gospel, he was a short guy that was struggling to see Jesus, and he, he climbed up into a tree. And so Jesus saw him up in the tree, and and then he called him down from the tree, and he said, well, we're going to go to your house, and we're going to spend time with you today. And uh, the, when the Bible describes Jesus uh, coming to the place where he spoke to Zacchaeus, and he invited him down from the tree, and he initiated that moment of relationship. It says that he reached the spot. I am in most versions of the Bible, it talks about that spot that he got to, and and so that was a matter that, that God spoke to us about, as far as a revelation that there's a spot that God brings us to. And Jesus knew where that spot was, and he went to it, and it was in that spot that Zacchaeus was invited into a relationship with him. It was in that spot that relationship was started with Jesus. In that spot, that was the day of salvation. That was the moment of salvation for Zacchaeus. And, and so that became a part of, and that's become a part of, say, how we do evangelism, is that we're being led by the Spirit. We're being led by whatever it is God has for us to do that day, in that moment, in that time. And we're believing God to take us to that spot, whatever that spot's going to be uh, for whoever it is we're going to speak to. And so being sensitive to that, being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, being sensitive to how he guides and where he has for us to go. Sometimes there's moments where we'll go and if you've done evangelism enough times with us, you realize that like you'll go and you'll stand somewhere and there may not be anybody there right then. And you're just standing there and you're just waiting because you're at the spot and maybe you got there a little bit early. I don't know. I don't know how that works, you know, as far as the time is concerned. But you get to that spot, and, and then God invariably brings somebody your way, and, and that's how it works. And other times you arrive at the same time they do. Other times you get there, and they're standing there. But that's the spot. That's the place. That's the moment. And so in this passage, they talk about a day of salvation. It talks about a, a time moment of salvation that this is the time, and this is the moment. This is the day. This is the place of the gospel. Now is the time. And the idea behind that is tomorrow, well, we don't own tomorrow. We don't, we don't have anything about tomorrow. We don't, we don't know what happens tomorrow yet because that's in the future. And, and the whole idea is what we have is today. And so the encouragement on this is to respond. If you're in that moment, you're in that spot, you're in that place, is to do what it is that God has for you to do. If that's the moment of salvation, respond. If that's the moment where God is having you lead someone to that place, then respond. If that's the moment where God's going to use you in a gift of the Holy Spirit or God's going to use you in some kind of power or whatever it is he's going to do with you, that's the moment to respond. And, and I, don't, I don't know if we like that. Uh, and, and I know some of us are more open to that than others. I mean, some people don't like to respond in the moment. They're afraid because they're afraid, well, I'm going to make a mistake. 
or they're afraid I'm going to do the wrong thing, or I'm going to say the wrong thing, or I don't know what to say, or I don't know what to do in that moment, and yet that's the moment. And so putting that off, say, well, I guess God will show up again tomorrow. Well, maybe, but not in that moment he won't. Maybe he'll create another moment. Maybe he'll create another opportunity. I don't know that, and I can't answer that. But I do know that in my life when I respond in a moment, and this is going somewhere, when I respond in a moment, that's when I see God move. And whether or not, uh, and I miss those moments sometimes, yeah, I do. But other times I catch it. You know, other times I'm there and I, I realize it and I see God move in those times. And I'm not trying to say I, I hit it every time. I'm not trying to say I'm, I'm on it every time or anything else like that. And this is in no way trying to make anybody feel badly or anything. The idea behind it is, though, is that when we can find ourselves in that moment and we get that opportunity to respond, all I can say is I encourage you to do it because that's when I've seen God move. I encourage you to do it. That's when I've seen God's power manifest. I encourage you to do it. That's why I see people's lives change, including mine has been changed in those moments when I've responded at the moment at the time when God is moving, when God is saying what he's saying, when I don't put it off because it's more convenient, or I don't put it off because I don't know exactly what to do or what to say. I don't put it off because I'm afraid. And, and sure, God brings around other things and there's other opportunities or whatever, but it's still important not to miss it when God brings us to the spot, when he brings us to that moment. And so one of the first things that Paul's talking about in this passage, and, and this is where he's moving through here, is this idea of his ministry, this idea of his preaching, his teaching. And he describes it in such a way that's very balanced. And what I mean by balanced? Well, he describes the balance of it. And, and I think sometimes we, we forget that there's, a, within the kingdom and within God's creation and within the way God has made things, there's balance in that. And I think sometimes we, we forget that when we will go to one extreme or we go to the other, but we don't really live in extremes. Uh, although we're programmed to think that way, we, we don't live that way. And that's not how humans live. That's not, how, that's not the way things are. We want to define things in extremes because it's convenient. But the real definition of things really doesn't exist in those extremes. You know, and I've done this before, and you know this little drill I do. But I start naming off words. And you think about the first thing that comes to mind. If I say something's not high, it's low. Yeah, well, that's not really true, though. If something is not hot, it's yeah, but that's not true either. In fact, none of those things are. If something's not black, it's, you know, it's not that, though. And so those extremes, although they're convenient ways to define things and they're convenient ways to, to look at things, they don't really describe our life. They don't really describe the way we actually exist and the way that we actually live. And, and so thinking in those terms when it comes to whatever and and. I'm talking about gospel stuff here. I'm talking about Jesus stuff here. I'm talking about Paul's ministry and preaching and teaching and the way that he was preaching and teaching. You think in terms of extremes, but that's not how he probably taught. He probably taught with a balance, which is what he's describing here. There is a definite balance to the way that he begins or the way that he teaches and the way that he describes that teaching through here. And so I want to talk about a little bit about what I mean by that balance. First of all, he describes what he's teaching. He describes it as the word of truth. And the way that that's constructed in the language that he's using 
that idea of word of truth, the, the construction of it is such that it is a, an objective truth. Because there's different types of truth. There's subjective truth. It's like whatever you think is true. But then there's objective truth that when it comes to God that he has described throughout the scriptures of this is true according to him. And his truth rules, so it's objective. Now it'd be, for example, and, and I know that people have tried to narrow definitions of objective truth, but objective truth, but it'd be like me saying, okay, this chair is black. We can probably all agree on that. Even if you're colorblind, it's still black. Okay? Uh, there's an objective truth to that. This chair is constructed of metal and some kind of foam and naugahyde or something. I don't know what that is on there. Fake vinyl. Fake vinyl. Fake uh, leather vinyl stuff. All right. So there's a, there's an objective thing. These are materials that were made that make up this chair. And they can be quantified and described. And they have color to them. They have a certain weight to them. They're welded in certain places. I mean, there's certain objective truth to that. Uh, now... Now, a truth that may not be objective is you may look at that chair and you may say, that chair is ugly, okay? And I look at that chair and I think that chair is one of the most beautiful pieces of furniture I've ever seen in my life. So that would be my subjective like, opinion on that. That's okay. That's what I think. You think it's ugly. All right, well, we'll agree or disagree. But the fact that it's made out of metal and it has certain materials in it, well, it can be torn apart and figured out and it can be tested and we can know that and there's an objective truth to that. So Paul, what he's talking about, he's like, this isn't my opinion, is what Paul is saying. He's like, I don't teach my opinion. And, and when he does, if you read through the, the letters, the epistles of Paul, when he gives his opinion, he tells you that. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when you're going through there. He'll say, this I'm saying, this is my opinion on this. I didn't get this from the Lord. This is what I think, and this is what's done in the churches, but I didn't get this directly from the Lord. So he'll tell you if it's his opinion. All right? But the gospel he was preaching in his ministry, that word of truth described in that, that is an objective truth. And that's what he was doing. But it's also a simple truth. Now, I was talking about this a little bit yesterday, about the simplicity of the gospel, that, that as humans, we tend to complicate things for whatever reason. And I have theory why I believe people complicate things. But we, we tend to complicate stuff that's really not that complicated. But we make it complicated. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what it is. Now, when it comes to spiritual truth like this, super complicated. We super overcomplicate things. Uh, partially, I think, because the more complicated something is, the less is expected of us to respond to it. All right? So if you can complicate something enough, and you can make it enough of an enigma that you can't quite figure it out or describe it, then you really don't have to respond to it. So there's an advantage to making things really complicated. There's an advantage of making things really hard to understand in that it provides an out. It provides an opportunity to say, well, I just really don't know what to think about this, so I'm not going to do anything about it. But simplicity eliminates some of that. Simplicity eliminates those, those kind of weird choices about, well, this is way too hard for me to understand. I'm just going to have to wait and it out another day. 
or another month or another year till I understand it better. Well, simplicity tells us like, okay, well, here's your choice. What's up? And you either make that choice or you don't. And, and so bringing people to places where they, they're into this place where they, they need to make a choice or they can make a choice or we bring them to a place where they can make a choice, I think is a really positive thing. Even if they don't make the choice you hope they make, at least they recognize they're not making the choice they need to make possibly. And that's a much better place to be in than a perpetual state of confusion or a perpetual state of flux like, I just don't know what's going on. And so Paul describes his preaching as a word of truth, as an objective word of truth, but also as a simple, a simple word of truth. In other words, it's not corrupted. It's not a mix of some kind of philosophy or some kind of human reasoning or, or something like that. You know, there's certain things in the Bible. Uh, and I'll just give you just a quick thing that we talk about sometimes. All right. We'll talk about the knowledge of good and evil. Just real quick. This is one of those things in the Bible. Okay, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Y'all know the story, right? God tells them. He says, all right, listen. You can eat of any tree in the garden, including the tree of life. You can eat of the tree of life and live forever. You can eat of any tree in this garden. The only limitation I'm going to put on you in this whole garden is you can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only limitation. You can't do it. Because the day you do that, you're going to die. And so, if you know the story, they, they, that's the one limitation they have. They find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sit and stare at it. All right, Of all the trees that were there, they could have sat and stared at the tree of life. They could have sat and stared at a, at a pear tree or, or whatever, or a peach tree if they wanted to. But they stared, they're, they're sitting there talking in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one limitation they were given, the one thing they were told not to do. And, and God said to them, the day of you eat of this is the day you die. And so they eat of the tree. And without going too much into the whole story, all bad things happen after that. It's all bad. And, and only, only philosophy and human wisdom will tell you anything differently than what I just said. Because everything that happens after that is all bad. They get kicked out of the garden. They get cursed. They're going to die. Dust you remain, to dust you shall return. Then they got individual curses. You got the guy being cursed. You got the woman being cursed. All right? It's all bad. It's all bad. So the fruit, whatever that fruit was that they ate of, the end result of that was just bad. It was the loss of what they had. It was the loss of that place. It was the loss of walking with God in the cool of the day. It was the loss of, of, of everything that God had made for them and everything that God had intended for them, the way that they had been created to live. So I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to ask you a question. How in the world do we now glorify the knowledge of good and evil? Because people do. Not only people, Christians do. How? What kind of backflip do you need to do to glorify the very thing that got us booted out of the Garden of Eden, that got us cursed 
as a people and as men and women individually. How, how do you do a backflip to all of a sudden, all of a sudden now it's like, oh, that's a good thing now. How? How is by mixing our own reasoning, our own thoughts, our own whatever you want to call it, philosophy, and making it into something that's desirable. But it never was. It was desirable to their whatever their temptation, their sin, and it caused all kinds of problems, but it's not desirable to keep. God didn't intend for us to live by the knowledge of good and evil. If he had, he would have given it to us from the start. God didn't intend for us to, to be working and moving in the knowledge of good and evil. If he did, he wouldn't have said that was the one limitation in the Garden of Eden. Does this make sense to everybody? I'm just trying to keep it simple. Right? So you're telling somebody, don't do this. It's terrible for you. You're going to die if you do it. Sure enough, you did it. It's terrible, and they died. But now somehow it's good. And all I'm trying to say is that's how things get mixed up. That's how things get mixed up. That's how philosophy comes in. That's how that mixture of, of human wisdom and reasoning and, and philosophy gets mixed in with that and then takes a simple truth of what God has said and what really matters and turns it into something else. That's a perpetuation of the original sin. Because the woman saw that the fruit looked good and was good to eat. And they both ate of it. So we're going to still live under the same delusion. Yeah. Yeah. And so what Paul is trying to get across here is that there's a simplicity to the gospel he preaches. Before it gets twisted up, before it gets turned into something it's not, before it becomes something it was never meant to be, there's a simple truth to it. And that's the simple truth that, that he is proclaiming. He's saying, this is what I teach. This is what I preach. And so without any human wisdom, without any human philosophy, this is the simple truth. Now, he, he describes in other places that the cross is foolishness, that the the gospel doesn't make sense to people. All right, well, it doesn't. So let's not twist it into something it's not, just so it'll try to make sense to somebody. I, I'm not going to try to make sense of what God says is his will, his purpose, and his plan. There's nothing for me to try to make sense of that. There is a simplicity to it. There's a simplicity to, to responding to what he has said, responding to what he's revealed to us in faith. That's simple. But that's the choices that we're brought into. You know, I was talking earlier about how you bring somebody into, out of confusion into a place of decision. Well, those are powerful times. If, if you're a person that you choose to live in confusion, when you get brought into a place of decision, whether or not you make the right decision or not, that's not really what I'm getting at here. What I'm getting at, at least you're brought to a point of confrontation and of decision, and you'll decide whatever it is you're going to do, but at least you know you've made that decision. You know, <laughs> Getty Lee said it best. If you choose not to decide, you, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. 
all right? And, and, and living in confusion and living in that kind of constant state of perpetual confusion is a decision in and of itself. You still have made a choice, but you need to recognize you've made a choice. Because it's from that point. Maybe you'll make a different choice next time. I don't know. And I'm not even judging your choice. I just want you to know you're making one. I just want you to know that, that your lack of decision or your lack of, of whatever it is that you're doing or not doing is still a choice. And maybe the next time that you're presented with that or maybe the next time God brings that around, you can make a different choice because you've recognized where you're at. See, to me, that's a powerful place to be in. Whether or not you're on the right side of it or the wrong side of it, I'm not that concerned about that because that's the work and that's the grace and that's the mercy of God at work. What I'm concerned about is that we just don't continue to fool ourselves living in some half state thinking, well, I just don't know. Yeah, you do know. Probably. You just don't want to know. And as long as you know that, and as long as you can, can come to that place at some point, maybe, maybe you can make a different choice the next time. But probably you won't if you've just accepted the fact you're confused and you, you just plan on living there. It's not that hard to understand. It's just not. You know, I counsel people that want to get married. And there's just sometimes people come to me, they want to get married. And they'll tell me their story. And at the end of their story, I'll say, I can't do that. It's not every time. It's just sometimes. And I just can't do it. Now, am I saying you can't get married? Nope. Am I saying that I think you're a bad person? Nope. Am I saying that I think you're doing the wrong thing? No. All I'm saying is I can't do it. Because I have a certain thing that I believe. There's a certain thing that is a part of my life. There's a certain thing that I see things a certain way, and there are certain parameters to that. And when I hear certain things, and you come to me and say, hey, can you do this? My answer is no, sorry. But somebody will, and I assure them, somebody will do this. It's just not going to be me. It's not going to be me. Because you can tell me your story five times. You can tell me every extenuating circumstance. You can tell me everything you want to tell me about your story, and I'll listen to it. And, and at the end of it, I'm still, if it's the same facts that were there from the beginning, I'm still going to say no. And, and you can complicate it. Make, it. make it even more complicated. And tell me all the other details about it. That's okay. But if I can't do it, I'm still going to say no. Because my choice is simple. It's just simple. And your story may be super complicated. I know that. But the facts of the matter, at least as far as where I stand and what I can do and what I can't do, are a lot more simple than that. And it could be that maybe your story doesn't need to be as complicated. I don't know. Maybe it's just a sim more simple matter than that. There's lots of things in life that just really aren't as complicated as we think or want them to be. See, the word that Paul preached conveyed truth of God to man. Somebody look at James 1.18. James 1.18. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. 
Yeah. You see, the true word, there's something creative about it. There's something uh, that is a matter of deliverance about it. There's something freeing about it. There's a liberty about it. There's something new about it, something powerful, something that brings life. I mean, you look at the descriptor you used there, we gave birth. We give birth. I mean, you think about it, that's life-giving. That's new life. And, and I, I just want you to consider that, that when he speaks to us at conveying that truth, there's life in that. And that's the kind of life that Paul wanted to give. That's the kind of life that he preached. That's the kind of life that people responded to. Think about all the places, Paul. We don't have any, I don't think, anything that I've ever read that would indicate Paul was a super dynamic preacher. In fact, we'd have a story in the book of Acts where he was teaching and a kid fell asleep in a window and fell to his death listening to Paul. He actually killed somebody with his preaching. You know, and I don't know if that was because it got late at night. I don't really know. But he, he talks about really not being that eloquent. You know, they describe Apollos as being eloquent. They describe Apollos as being someone that was an orator. But Paul not. And so it really wasn't his delivery. It was the truth. I mean, a guy doesn't plant that many churches, doesn't see that many converts, doesn't make that many disciples, all right, unless he's speaking some truth and people are responding to that. And so he's preaching that truth, he's speaking that truth, he's conveying that truth to people. And it was giving birth to churches. And it was giving birth to disciples. And it was giving birth to new believers. Because that's what he did. And, and it, it encourages me because it doesn't have anything to really do with the delivery per se. The eloquence. I mean, Paul... Probably, I mean, excuse me, Apollos probably had plenty of converts. Apollos may have started churches. I have no idea. All I know is Paul wrote half New Testament. And I know all about Paul. I know about Apollos because other people talk about him. Right? So he was the eloquent guy, but I know about the guy that maybe probably wasn't so eloquent, but spoke words of truth and life to people. And so he describes himself that way. And somebody look at uh, Romans one sixteen. Romans one sixteen. All right, so then he, he begins to talk about power, the power of God. And this idea, you got the gospel, and, and the component of the gospel is I'm going to speak a simple truth. And so I'm going to preach this simple truth, but then he talks about the power of God. And the gospel is just, it's the same. It's that you got the simple truth, but you got the power of God. Which is it? It's both. They're two sides of the same coin. Because you've got this simple truth that's going forth, but you've got this simple truth that's going forth in power. And you guys see uh, the movie Jesus Revolution? All right. It's a story. <laughs> it's a story about, uh, it, it's out in movie theaters right now. All right. So 
It was a story about like the beginnings of, or yeah, the beginnings of Jesus people movement. There, there was a, I guess you'd call it a revival among hippies uh, back in California. And uh, it took place, there was a, a portion of it taking place in San Francisco, a portion taking place in Southern California. And this is a story that is being told by a guy by the name of Greg uh, Lowry. Lori, excuse me, Greg Lori, and and so Greg Lori, uh, he's big time pastor out in California now. He Harvest International Harvest Church, one of the largest churches in California, but he was part of that, and and this was kind of the beginning. Chuck Smith was a part of this movie, and it's, it's Greg Lori's telling of the tale of what was happening. But there was a character in that, and I'm not going to get too far into this, but there's a character in that by the name of Lonnie Frisbee. And he was one of the hippies. And he was a kid. He had, had uh, uh, this guy Chuck Smith's daughter picked him up hitchhiking one day. And he was just just Jesus all over him. And so he is evangelist. He was a prophet. And he was instrumental in getting a, just a church. He took Chuck Smith's church and to Chuck Smith's credit, he opened up his doors to this guy, and he just started bringing people in. And Chuck Smith's church went from 40 or 50 people to thousands within a year. And this guy, Lonnie Frisbee, uh, who's a controversial character, uh, but had a pretty big influence uh, on people that came after him, including John Wimber. He helped start the Vineyard Movement. Uh, he was he helped start the Calvary Chapel movement with uh, Chuck Smith, and he is, was the embodiment of what later became known as power evangelism. Uh, John Wimber wrote a book called Power Evangelism eventually, and it was basically taking stuff that Lonnie Frisbee was doing because Lonnie Frisbee was a dirty hippie, uh, but he was actually out there doing it, and and taking stuff that he was doing and giving it some kind of a meat some kind of uh bible meat to it in other words making looking it up saying okay this is what the bible has to say about this and and making some doctrine out of it all right but that whole book came from as far as i'm concerned came from the life and ministry of this other guy line frisbee so he was an embodiment of this idea of this guy loved people he would preach a simple truth a simple gospel but he would demonstrate the power of God as he did it. They were married together. And, and this was the idea that Paul was using. This is the idea that the apostles used. And this is the idea that Jesus did. I mean, you look at Jesus when he would go and he would preach. What was his preaching accompanied with? It was accompanied by healings and deliverance. And, and people would stand in line and they'd wait for him to minister to them. But he would also teach and he would preach and he would bring people into saving, you know, that, that gospel knowledge. And so Paul, when he was going about his ministry, the early apostles, when they were going about their ministry, you know, these signs shall follow them that believe. They will. And you read off that list of things that they would do. And there are all these power things that they would lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And they would cast out demons and all the things that they would be doing. But it was all together. There's no separation of those things. And, and a huge confusion that I had coming in to the church when I first began to, to come into the church when I was a new believer was, where is that? 
I could go out and I could find out, oh, this is how you hand out tracks. If you don't know what a track is, thank God. Don't worry about it. But this is how you hand that out, or this is how you say this, or they give you a course in, in how to talk somebody into Jesus, and you'd get an evangelism course, whatever it was. Or, or you got, oh, pray the sinner's prayer. What's the sinner's prayer? It's this thing here. Oh, memorize the prayer. Okay. So there's all these techniques, and there's all these ideas about how you get people to know Jesus. And again, human beings, what are we going to do with anything? Take a simple truth and... Let's complicate it. Let's have a course. Let's do 12 steps on it. Let's do seven steps on it. Let's do five steps on it. Let's, let's make a booklet. Let's illustrate the booklet. Oh, it's awesome. All right, let's make it a comic book booklet. Okay, we'll use that. Whatever it is. But I couldn't figure out, and I, this is the honest truth, and I'm not, I know it sounds like I'm kind of exaggerating here, but I'm not. I could not figure out where's the married power of like, this is how Jesus did it. This is how the apostles did it. This, this is how we see throughout the New Testament how it's being done. Where is it? Where is it? And I mean, people tried to explain to me, and you got to kind of stand on one foot and juggle a little bit, try to explain to me you know, why people don't move in that or why people don't do that anymore. And I just wasn't buying it. I mean, I don't need a circus trick. All I need to know is, all right, how's this, how do you get about this? What's wrong? Where'd it go? How do we get it back? Let's get to it. And so over a period of years and really re just, just looking and reading and uh, well, a, a book that had a really big effect on me, which is kind of funny, it was a book called The Jesus People Speak Out, which I'm sure is not in publication anymore. But, you know, <laughs> reading about these hippies Right? And, I, and I wasn't that far removed. I, I got saved in the early 80s, so we're talking 10 years. And, and so there was these, still these books laying around in Lutheran churches and stuff. And so I'd, I'd find a book here or there, and I'd just read it. And it's like, these people were doing this. This, is it. this was 10 years ago. These people were doing this, back when I was reading it. These people were doing this in the power and the anointing, and they don't really have anything complicated about it. He said, we're going to love people, we're going to love you, and we're going to tell you about a God who loves you, and, and this is what he's provided for you. This is how you enter into that friendship with him. It was like that. And, and then there'd be people that got, were getting healed, and there were people getting delivered from drugs, and people getting delivered from alcohol, and people that were getting delivered of, of demonic influence, whatever it was, but they were getting delivered from that kind of stuff, and that was accompanying all this love, and this is how you, you come to know Jesus. All right. So all that made sense to me. And as I read this passage, and I'm looking at this in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's saying that. He's trying to describe that, and he's trying to tell people, this is how it's done. Is he making it up? No, that's how Jesus did it. Is he making it up? No, Peter was doing that. Is he making it up? That's what he was doing. Literally, that's his ministry. That's what he's doing. And, and God was, was doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. <laughs> extraordinary miracles i mean miracles are extraordinary but his were extra extraordinary but that's what he's doing and to me that that speaks to me about what are we doing and that's that call and that's that drive onto our lives and so he describes it this way and this, i'm gonna try to get through this he, he describes it this way he talks about the right hand and the left hand in this passage. Does your Bible say that? It talks about what's in your right hand, what's in your left hand. And the idea behind that is you don't have to really go too far in the scripture to begin to understand what he means by that. The right hand and the left hand. 
And and so let's look at um, Ephesians six seventeen. Ephesians six seventeen. All right, the idea behind this, and, and they talk about this, uh, this was a common saying and idea back in this day, is that your right hand was your spear hand and your left hand was your? No? No, shield. Right, so a spear, sword, whatever. There's your weapon in your right hand and your, and your shield in your left hand. So that was the common understanding. Now, I'm not just making that up. That's just common understanding. And so when he goes into more detail in Ephesians, he talks about that. He's like, well, in your hand, and most people are right-handed, and if you weren't right-handed, they kind of made you right-handed. Even when I was young, they, they did that. Like, I was pretty much left-handed growing up, but I was made right-handed, which is why I can't write good. But anyway, Garrett, you ever look at Garrett's writing? Yeah, he can't write very good. We didn't make him right-handed, but he chose right-handed, but I think that boy's left-handed for sure. But anyway, so so you got the sword of the spirit, right? That's the right hand on your right hand. So what were they what were they meeting? What was Paul running into? He was running into persecution. He was running into opposition. He was running into slander. Now, I'm obviously and I hope you understand, I'm not talking about physical things here. This is spiritual things. Because the idea in Ephesians, Ephesians 6.17, of the sword of the Spirit, there's a particular word used there of sword. And that particular word that's being used there of sword is the, the, the word rhema. And it's just a specific word for word. Okay, so the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, that idea of word. There's a couple different words used for word in the in New Testament. And so describing that sword is rhema. And the other word that's used for word in the New Testament is logos. So you've got the logos and you've got the rhema. And the idea behind that, and it's not as cut and dry as people want to make it, but the idea behind that is the difference between that which is established and settled and that which is living and which is moving. So the idea of rhema is the idea of a living word. So what does that mean? That means that, let's say I'm reading the Bible. And the Bible says something, and it speaks to me in that moment, whatever that is, whatever that thing is that it speaks to me. Like maybe there's something in the scriptures that's talk about that to devote myself to prayer. The apostles devoted themselves to prayer and fasting. And I really just feel like God's speaking that to me. It's like you need to devote yourself to prayer and fasting over the next two days. All right. So that word becomes a raiment. That becomes a living word in my life. In other words, that's directional. That's telling me something. That is leading me somewhere. Now, another person may read the same passage, and they don't get that at all, right? So am I more spiritual than them? No. Do I, do I have more understanding than they do? No. It's just something that the Holy Spirit brought into my life that made real into my life and said, this is my direction for you, and this is what I have for you to do. And so I'm given that choice. Like, Are you going to do it? Two days? Devote yourself to prayer and fasting? That's the direction I got. And so there's something living about that. There's something that is directly instructional into my life through that. 
And that can come in different forms. That can come uh, through, again, the Bible, just, just some portion I'm reading just coming to life, being illumined by the Holy Spirit like that. It could come through prayer. Maybe there's that still small voice that I, I hear in prayer, and, and that's what he's telling me to do. You know, is that contradictory to the scriptures? No. Is there something contradictory about devoting myself to prayer and fasting? No. No, of course not. So maybe somebody prophesied that over me. Maybe I'm in church and somebody comes up and somebody says, I just really believe that God wants you to devote yourself to prayer and fasting over the next two days. All right. You see, there's a living word that comes forth in our lives. And so the Bible talks about that as being the sword of the Spirit. That's our sword. And, and that's an offensive weapon, spiritual weapon. And, and I can only give examples about like when, let's say that you're praying and, and you're doing some kind of spiritual warfare. And so you're going to pray uh, against whatever you're going to pray against. So you're gonna, you know, and, and so you start quoting scripture. But you're not just, just dryly quoting scripture. You're actually speaking these words. Like the Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And you're just going to speak that I resist, I resist the devil. All right, and I command or I speak forth in faith, he flees in Jesus' name, or whatever it's going to be. You know, I, I can't tell you how to word things, but um, or, or different things that come up like that where the scriptures, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, that's what the Bible says, but maybe that applies to a situation that you're in right now, and you speak those words over that situation. There is a powerful work that God can do through his word as it becomes living through you and by the power of the Holy Spirit. As his word lives in you and becomes powerful through you, as you begin to speak that forth and more than just reciting it, but actually meaning it, there's something really powerful about that. And that's that weapon that God gives us. He gives us that sword of the spirit. And he says, the other hand is the defense hand. You read the verse before that, Ephesians 6, 16. Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil. All right, and if you read and if you read the whole passage there, you get a whole bunch of armor, right? Like you got your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You've got the breastplate of righteousness, you've got the helmet of salvation, you've got the shield of faith. Your loins are, are girt about with truth. I know I'm speaking King James, but that's, you know, it says that somewhere in there. And, uh, and so you get the whole armor, so you're fully equipped. But you're not only equipped just to defend, you're also equipped to attack. And so Paul, as he's describing his ministry, and he's describing the, his balance in what he does, he's speaking a simple truth in power but the way that that manifests is that there's a sword in the right hand and there's a shield in the left and so it's not only just defending 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 but it's also attacking 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 depend on the situation and again what does that mean it's spiritual I'm not talking about attacking anybody physically. I'm talking about the spiritual understanding of this is that we have before us, and, and again, it was described in, in Corinthians, described later in 2 Corinthians, it's described in Ephesians, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
Jesus talked about, he said, if you're going to go and you're going to plunder the strong man's house, you got to go first behind the strong man. And so there's these illustrations that are given through the New Testament of this idea that this is more than just some kind of a defensive operation. There's also an offense to it. And so there is a preaching and there's an aggression to it. There's also a peace and there's a rest to it. There's a defense and there's an offense. There's a balance. And Paul, when he describes his ministry, he describes it in all of those ways. And so to just take one side of that is to miss it. To just take one thing from that is to miss it. Because there's certain things that God wants to say, that God wants to do, and that God has for us to do. And some of those things are going to be on the defense, and some of those things are going to be on the offense. But they're all going to be simple, and they're all going to be in power. And we just need to find ourselves in the spot that he has for us. And open and ready to act. I'm a firm believer that the stuff that God tells us to do is in deed, is in action. You want to love somebody? You love them in deed. You want to serve somebody? You serve them in deed. Okay? That there needs to be a manifestation. And so if we're going to preach... We're going to teach. We're going to do what it is that God's called us to do. We're going to make disciples. We're going to preach the gospel. It is indeed that we do that. It's not in theory. It's not in thought. It's not somebody else. It is indeed that we go forth and do it. And so Paul is laying down the example of what he does. And I'd say a guy that started as many churches as he did, made as many disciples as he did, and saw as many converts as he did, wrote half New Testament, we could listen up on this one. And so I, I pray, and I want to pray for us tonight, that we find that balance. That we find the right balance of of offense and defense we find the right balance of simplicity in our life with the amount of power that God wants to really pour through us that we find ourselves in a place of courage bravery life a place where God's going to use us because I believe that's what he's encouraging us toward Remember, he starts off, what's today? It's God's day. What's tomorrow? We don't know what tomorrow is. All we know about tomorrow is that there's always free beer tomorrow. Because <laughs> you never get there. Okay? We got today. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you that... Um, you teach us what this is. They've called us to be effective for you. 
we're not just getting by. We're not just uh, barely making it. But you've called us to really be effective. And as part of that, I believe that you have things to teach us today. You have things for us to practice today. You have things for us to do today. You have things that you want to say through us today. You have people that you want us to love today. I ask you, God, that we become more and more responsive to your Holy Spirit. We become more and more responsive to your word. And that, Father, we would begin to operate out of fear, not in fear, but in bravery and in courage. And so, Father, I ask that you teach us what it is to move in your power, what it is to see your power move through us, what it is to speak with authority, what it is to speak in boldness, what it is to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit through healing and deliverance, what it is to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom, what it is to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of prophecy, in miracles, in faith, tongues, interpretation of tongues, all the manifestations that you give, discerning of spirits, what it is to manifest the power of God in discerning of spirits. But Father, tonight I thank you that uh, your work in us is ongoing. And I pray that as we commit ourselves to responding to you, we begin to see what it is to live in, in, in the balance and in the authority that you have for us to live in. God, sometimes on the offensive, sometimes on the defensive, sometimes both at the same time. Sometimes aggressive, sometimes passive. Sometimes both at the same time. God, I pray that we would learn that balance and we learn what it is to move in the flow and the time of the Holy Spirit. That when it's time to challenge, we challenge. When it's time to back up and pray, we back up and pray. When it's time to, to preach and to speak forth and to proclaim, we proclaim. When it's time to listen, we listen. But God, I pray that we would respond to you. As we find ourselves in that spot, as we find ourselves in that place, as we find ourselves in that thing that you have for us, in that moment that you have for us, I pray, God, you'd use us to your glory and your honor. God, I pray we'd be effective for the work of the kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. So we're saying amen. 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 All right. Thanks for coming, everybody. Great to see you tonight. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an app growth of Chaplaincy of Syracuse University, 
UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah. <laughs> 